grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I knew that I shouldn't do it, but I couldn't help myself. When I was a boy, my bedroom was down the hall from my dad's home office. And sometimes, sometimes, I like to creep down the hall and sit outside the door and listen in on the conversations that he was having. Phone calls with colleagues or customers. Pretty boring, to be honest with you. (laughs) So why did I do it? Well, I didn't do it because I thought that maybe I would overhear something directly relevant to me, as though one day he was going to be on the phone and say, yeah, 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 I'm thinking I'm going to get Ryan a new convertible. (laughs) Yeah, I know he's 10, but he's got to learn on something, right? No, I didn't listen because I thought there was going to be something directly for me. I listened because I wanted to learn about him, about his personality, about his character. And as I listened in, as I overheard those conversations, I learned more about my father. Now, why do I tell you this? Because I think something similar is happening in today's gospel reading. Jesus tells a story. He tells a parable. And it is not directly relevant to you and me. He has a very specific target with this story. They themselves realized at the time. The chief priests, the Pharisees, they recognized that Jesus is telling this parable right to them. To admonish them, to encourage them, to repent, to receive the, the kingdom that God has prepared for them, that he desires to give to them. That's his specific target there. And you and I, we're the ones who have received the fruits of this kingdom, the ones he has given this gift to. And so this story is specifically for them. It's not particularly for us. And so why might we want to listen to it? What can we take from it? Well, like little Ryan crouching outside of his dad's home office, you and I are able to overhear this story. And as we overhear this parable, this story that Jesus tells, we are able to learn something profound about our Father, about his character, about what he is like, about his love. And it's maybe not what you would think, especially after first hearing this story. And so what I want to do this morning is to have us listen to the story again, to hear it again, Or maybe I should say to overhear it. So Jesus says, there's a master of a house who has a vineyard. And you guys probably know from Jesus' stories, whenever there's a character like this, a master of a house, a guy who owns a vineyard, this is pretty much always a stand-in, a symbol for God the Father. And then it says that he had a vineyard, and this is an ancient image for the people of God. In fact, we had it from our Old Testament reading in the prophet Isaiah, that the people of God, his people, were his vineyard. So Jesus says, a master of a house, he has a vineyard, and he loves this vineyard. He dotes on this vineyard. He cares for it. He puts a fence around it, digs a moat in it, makes sure that it's, it's free of stones. He does all that he can. He has a wine press dug, all of these things in order to care for his pleasant planting, in order to dote on his beloved vineyard. It's, it's kind of like the Sheppelmans caring for our church grounds here. This is what it's like with the master of the house taking care of his vineyard. He loves it. He does everything for it. But then one day he's got to leave 
the country. He's got to go to, you know, the Great Grapes Convention in Napa Valley or something like that. He leaves the country, and as time passes, it becomes time to collect the fruit. And so he sends his servants to go and collect the fruit from the, the tenant farmers, the ones who have been looking after the vineyard. And the first servant goes, goes to the vineyard and says, hey, my master has called me and said, it's time to collect the fruit. And they say, ha, yeah, right, beat it. You can tell your master to drop dead. We've got this vineyard well in hand and we're gonna enjoy the fruits. Thank you very much. The servants go back, they tell their master what has happened. And he says, no, I don't think so. Send another servant. So he sends yet another servant. And when the tenants get a hold of this guy, they don't just rough him up and tell him what for. They kill him. As people say sometimes, that escalated quickly. <laughs> but the master, he is undeterred. And so he sends yet another servant. And this poor sap, they stone him. But the master just keeps going. Servant after servant after servant. Death after death after death. You're like, what kind of story is this? What kind of tenants are these? And what kind of master? I mean, is he not going to get a clue at some point here that maybe he should just surrender and say, you know what? I'm going to get into a different line of business. Apparently, vineyards are more dangerous than I thought. Whatever it might be, you think, what is going on here? And yet the master's not done. After all of this, he thinks, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to send another servant. He's probably run out of servants at this point. He says, I am going to send my son. My son. Now pause just a minute here to reflect on the sheer lunacy of this master of the vineyard, the stubbornness of this guy. He's not getting a clue here. He's just going to keep at it. You think you don't need to send in your son. You need to send in a SWAT team at this point. Why are you still going after this? Why are you still being so persistent? It's just a vineyard. Give it up already. We all know how this is going to end. And sure enough, he sends his son and those wicked tenants. They sound just like the, uh, the brothers of Joseph in that Old Testament story. You remember that? He of the technicolor dream coat, right? And they say, come, here is the heir. Let us kill him. And so they throw him out of the vineyard and they put an end to the master's son. A brutal turn in a brutal story. And so what is the master of the vineyard going to do to those tenants? Well, the obvious answer is also a little bit extreme, but it seems like he needs to give these guys a taste of their own medicine, right? To come in and to put those wicked tenants to a wicked death. Squash them like so many grapes. That's how it has to end. A sad end to a sad story. This is the gospel of the Lord. <laughs> What's our takeaway from this story? As we overhear, as we overhear this, this story, what is it that we hear? The, the thing that stands out to me at first blush is obviously just the suffering in the story, the violence. We think, is that what we're supposed to take away from the story? That God is, is vengeful and violent? That he's not so much our Heavenly Father as he is the Godfather? <laughs> I want you to notice something, though, from the reading. All that talk of putting those wicked servants to a miserable death, that's not actually part of the story. 
That doesn't come out of the mouth of the master. It comes out of the mouths of those to whom Jesus is telling the story. Those religious leaders, the ones to whom it is addressed. Jesus had asked them the question, so what should that master of the vineyard do? And they say, ha, 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 put those wicked guys to a, a wicked death. They're a little bit slow on the uptake, see. They don't realize, evidently, that this story is directed at them. And so they say, this is precisely what those guys deserve. And they're right, of course. This is what they deserve. That's their just desserts. But you notice Jesus' response. They say that. Jesus doesn't say, yep, that's right. He answers his own question with another question. He says, okay, okay, you think that the, this violence should be met with more violence, but haven't you read in the scriptures? Don't you remember that, that passage from the Psalms? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Don't you guys remember that passage? Now, why does Jesus quote that? Why does he quote that here? This is a, a prediction from the Psalms of the preordained passion of the Messiah. That God the Father, the master of the vineyard, that he foresees from time eternal where the story is going. He knows that time after time, as he sends his servants, as he calls his people to repentance, time after time, they will not listen. They will kill one, stone another, and yet he is going to keep on after them until finally he will send his Messiah, whom they also will reject and kill. And yet the father knows that he is going to vindicate his son, that that stone whom they reject will become the cornerstone. Jesus quotes this passage, a passage of a persistent God. A Lord who loves his people, his vineyard, so much that even though they push back against him, he keeps on seeking them, sending servant after servant after servant, persistent, crazy even. This is who God is. What will he do to those wicked tenants? I'll tell you what he will do. He will suffer for them. He will lay down his life for them. Now that story has a little bit different twist to it, doesn't it? When we overhear this, it is a story of a Lord who, as it says over and over again in the scriptures, is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Or to use an old-fashioned word, he is a long-suffering Lord. He is a long-suffering Lord who bears patiently with his people, who is madly devoted to his vineyard, who continues seeking them out to bring them back to himself. He is a savior of stubborn love. A savior of stubborn love. Now, I take that phrase, stubborn love, from a, a song that came out a few years ago. Maybe some of you know it from a band called the Lumineers. And in the song, the, the singer, he's singing about his girl who just keeps pushing back on him just keeps running away, and he says, she lies and steals and cheats. I still love her. I don't even care. And he goes on to, to sing in the song. He says, it's better to feel pain than nothing at all. The opposite of love's indifference. It's better to feel pain than nothing at all. The opposite of love is indifference. 
And so he keeps seeking this girl, even though she keeps resisting his advances. Now, I'm not here to give relationship advice today. That's not my point. But here is something of what the love of our Lord is like. The history of humanity is lying, stealing, cheating. And yet God doesn't even care. He keeps coming after us because he loves his people so much. So he is persistent. So he is indefatigable, refusing to get tired in coming after you and me. Even though all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Even though all of us, like oxen, are stubborn and stiff-necked. Still, we have a Savior, the Lamb of God, who comes and lays down his life for us. To claim us, stubborn people that we are. He meets our stubbornness with a still more stubborn love. Crazy about us, he is. He can't stop loving you and me. And so he keeps on after us, even to the point of sending his own son, the cornerstone, despised and rejected by men. Even though, like Joseph's brothers, they say, this is the heir, let us kill him. Jesus, as our greater Joseph, meets their meanness with kindness. It says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And even when they reject him, rebel against him, rebuff him, and he is up there hanging on the cross, what is he doing? Is he crying out curses and maledictions on them, saying, finally, Father, give them what they, what they got coming to them. Give those wicked tenants the miserable death. No. Jesus takes that miserable death on himself. And cries out over and over and over again, forgive them, Father. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the stubborn love of our Lord for you and me. You have a Father who is long-suffering, who bears patiently with you and me in all of our ridiculousness. Do you think that your sins can separate you from your father? Because they cannot. Do you think that your fickle faith or your foibles, those things that you fall into over and over and over again, that at some point that's going to be the last straw and God's going to say, ah, enough with it already. He will not. But he is going to keep seeking you, keep pursuing you, because he is a long-suffering Lord. He is a savior of stubborn love. And we, as his people, we have the, the privilege to share, to show that stubborn love with others, to seek, to be persistent on our persistent God's behalf. And so I want to leave you with a, a story of one such wonderful Christian person, a woman by the name of Monica. I don't know Monica personally. I know this story secondhand, but I can testify that it's true. Monica was just a lovely Christian woman, perfect mom. And yet, as happens sometimes, she had an imperfect son. <laughs> he was a problem child, basically, from the time that he was born, Gus. Gus was constantly pushing back against her. He would even say later that even as a little boy, even as a toddler, that he would scream out and cry out that he was just a pain in the neck. And as he got a little bit older, as he was a little boy, he was running with the bad crowd. He was stealing from his parents, sneaking into shows that he should not be seeing. Still, Monica was persistent, loved him, prayed for him, shared with him the love of Jesus, kept going after him with her own stubborn love. Finally, Gus is 18, gives birth to a son out of wedlock. 
Still, Monica loves him, seeks him, pursues him, forgives him, shares with him the love of the Savior. But Gus isn't done yet. He decides, no, I need to go and sow even more wild oats. Decides he's going to study abroad. Leaves the country in order to, to go to school elsewhere. And when he does, he finds himself dabbling in some other religions. He even joins a cult for a while. Now he's past his 20s. He's into his 30s. And still, he's giving all of this headache and heartache to his poor mother, Monica, who loves him, who prays for him, who preserves him, and writes him. Even Sometimes she would go and visit him and stay with him, trying to cajole him, persuade him, bring him back to the love of the Lord. Well, it's a long story, and I won't get into all of it, but at some point in his mid-30s, finally, through the mercy of God, Gus gets brought to the faith, becomes a Christian, is baptized, and in fact, Monica died not long after that. And Gus, Gus would go on to become none other than maybe the greatest teacher in the history of Western Christianity. You know him better as St. Augustine. St. Augustine only became who he was because of St. Monica, the patron saint of stubborn love, who persisted in her care and affection for her son as often as he strayed. Friends, that's the love that your Lord has for you, the persistent love of your heavenly Father who comes after you and will not let you go. Anyway, that's the way I overheard it. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand for prayer.